Uh, I'm going to tell you, if you've never been an optimist before, I'm going to tell you how you can be an optimist. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if you are already an optimist, I'm going to tell you how you can stay that way, which is a pretty big promise, but I think you'll see as we go through this material today that it has a lot of power to give you the ability to interpret situations in your life in a positive way. And as we just get started with this this morning, let me ask you a question. Do you know somebody in your world, somebody in your sphere of influence, that is like a walking minus sign. You have one of those, right? This person is, they radiate negativity. They leak it everywhere they go. They spread a little bit of negativity around. And you notice, I don't know if, you're, if, if you've noticed this, but they have the ability to bring down a perfectly good conversation. Like you think about it, this conversation was going to a pretty nice place. And then this person hops in, they join in. The next thing you know, you're depressed. You're walking away from this conversation. You think, my life is coming to an end. This whole place is going downhill. And you're thinking, what happened? Oh, well, I talked to them. I remember now what happened, right? You duck this person in hallways. You see them coming along. You're like, I don't need to spend time with this person. You know, we start using phrases like, I can, use, I can handle them in small doses, but no more than that because it's, it's caustic. It's not fun. We don't like being around negative people. And they have the ability to turn a perfectly neutral circumstance into a negative. You know what I mean? Like there are things in life, circumstances, issues, challenges, just stories, conversations. They're not, they don't have a, a necessarily a positive charge or a negative charge. They're just neutral. But a negative person can take a neutral thing and turn it into a negative thing. And you think, I wasn't depressed about this till we started talking about it. But now that we started talking about it, I'm really, I'm really depressed. But let's flip it. Do you know somebody in your life who's like a walking plus sign? Well, first off, the world does not have enough of these people. Um, but have you noticed how much fun it is to be around them? I mean, you just want to hang out with them. You want to have breakfast, lunch with them. You want to talk, have a conversation because they bring the conversation up. And when you talk to them, it's like, and it's not like they're just floating on a cloud and they don't realize that not everything in the world is positive, but somehow they have the ability to look at the same things that we look at, but they interpret them in a positive way, which is powerful. You get around them and you're like, man, I just want to be around this person. A lot of times we, we refer to this is charisma, right? But charisma is not so much about having good looks or, or, or having that magic combination of just, you know, whatever it takes for people to want to be around you. It's mostly about positivity. It's mostly about the ability to look at things and, and interpret them in a positive light. So I think intuitively we know that, that optimism is a good thing. But I promised you, and I'm going to make good on my promise, I told you, I'm going to tell you how you can get there. So if, you've, if, if, if in your life people have called you a pessimist before, or they've called you a realist, which is just a more polite way of calling you a pessimist, um, right? we're going to talk about how you, can, how you can experience optimism. I think this will be very helpful for you this week. But before we get there, I want to prove a concept really quickly, and that is I want to prove that we can have multiple people looking at the same thing and see different things. So would you play this game with me? We'll play along. I, here in a second, I'm going to put some words on the screen. And I'm going to stand right here next to it so the camera guys can get the, the full screen in it so you can see it on the iMags. But I'm going to put some words on the screen. Here's what I want you to do. Play along. When I put the words up, I want you to read what you see as soon as you see it. So don't wait for me to count to three or anything like that. As soon as you see the words come up on the screen, read out loud what you see. Ready? Here we go. I'm going to put it up. There we go. Okay. So who said love is now here, right? And, and, and uh, who said love is nowhere, right? 
Okay, good news. That doesn't mean you're a pessimist, okay? <laughs> this isn't like two minutes into the talk, proof of concept, okay? <laughs> We're just talking about looking at something and seeing two different things. Which, by the way, I have to do this because Les, Doctors Les and Leslie Parrott showed me this, and I have to, now I have to honor the fact that there's going to be a few people in the room who are nonconformist who somehow managed to read this, love, I snow here, right? <laughs> I don't know what to do with that, but you know who you are, okay? So, but we do. We look at things differently, don't we? Like, we can see the same circumstance or the same thing. Our kids may see it one way. We may see it one way. Our spouse may see it a different way. And those interpretations are powerful, right? Have you noticed that a lot of times our mood hinges on our interpretation of a circumstance? I mean, my wife and I can look at the same thing, but she might be in a great mood about it. I might be in a really bad mood about it because we interpreted it in two different ways. So interpretation is very powerful. And we use the old clichéic example of the half glass of water, right? And this is the whole optimism, pessimism thing we've heard ever since we were kids, that supposedly an optimist looks at the glass and says, well, it's half full. But a pessimist looks at the glass and says it's half empty. And the reason we use this illustration, the reason it's it's kept on so long is the idea that you can have a neutral situation and supposedly if you were to have a completely neutral situation that would separate the pessimist from the optimist because the pessimist would still find something wrong with the neutral situation and the optimist would find something right with it. So let's just talk about that because if it's, if, if, if it's all about how you see a glass then it's not worth spending a weekend on. It's certainly not worth spending your time sitting here listening to me talk about it. But I think it's bigger than that. And I think it's more powerful than that, and I think it's more manipulatable than that. So that's what I want to talk to you about in our time together. By the way, optimism is worth more to you than just a good outlook. Did you know it's worth something to your health? Did you know that the literature says that optimistic people are happier, they're less likely to get depressed, and here's one that's very interesting. You, optimistic people tend to recover faster from physical trauma. We actually have a study that's been done fairly recently where they followed patients of a specific operation after the operation to see how quickly they recovered. And they knew ahead of time who their pessimists were and who their optimists were, and the optimists healed quicker. And there's something about our outlook in life that is somehow connected to our physical life, but it's connected to our emotional life. Our outlook has touch points everywhere. It connects with us spiritually, how we connect with God, and it connects with us physically and emotionally too. So it's very, very important. But we've got a little bit of a, a battle on our hands. If we want to have a good outlook in this world, if we want to have positivity in our life, then we've got a little bit of a battle on our hands. Because how many of us would be first to say that we're living in an epidemic of pessimism? I mean, it's everywhere. Everywhere you go. And it's almost like that's the cool badge. The cool badge is if you can find something cynical to say or if you can find something sarcastic to say because it's almost like the way you are cool in our culture is to be pessimistic. And we've lost our ability to see good in things. I mean, just look at your social media feeds for Pete's sake, you know? And even people who mean well, they post negative, 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 and you think, you know, digesting a steady stream of negativity is almost certain to cause you to, to feel negative yourself and, and, and to be negative. 
but, but we see it over and over again. And even people will send me emails, you know, with all of this stuff that's circulating around. Hey, you know, Pastor, did you see this with the political thing going on? And this is probably the ashes of the red heifer. And did you see this person? I think they're probably the Antichrist. And, and they're, you know, they're putting it all together. And what do you think, Pastor? And here's the thing, by the way, you know, no offense. Send me the emails. It's fine. I'll read them. But, but um, I'll read most of them. But, <laughs> but seriously, the, the, the thing here is, why would we want to focus on that? Why would we want to focus on, on the bad? There are a lot of great things going on in our world. God is about doing a lot of wonderful things in our world right now. Why would we focus on, on the bad? Okay, I'm, I'm getting ready to confess to something major here. Uh, and, I, and I need to set it up, okay? My, my wife and I decided some time ago that we weren't really comfortable with our girls just watching anything that came on the TV. I mean, commercials, my goodness, it's gotten crazy. So we said, we're, we're going to try to really help give them some ideas of what are some good things to watch, and we're going to participate in watching that with them so that they can see how important it is to us that, that we feed our mind with good information and not bad. And so we have a streaming internet service, and one of the things my wife and I looked into is what about some older shows, you know, some, some classic shows that we really don't have to be as concerned about the content. And uh, so we stumbled across an old show that, that's called Leave It to Beaver, right? <laughs> so that's my confession. Call me an antique. Laugh at me if you want. Put me on the shelf. But we as a family have now watched episodes of Leave It to Beaver together. And I got to tell you, I actually like this show. Let me tell you why I like it. In the middle of one of the episodes, I'm watching this with, with my little girls, and the mom tells little Beaver that God is everywhere, and God follows you, and God is looking after you, and he wants to take wonderful care of you. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is a primetime television show filmed for the average American family embracing God's presence. I'm thinking, oh, if we could just get a little bit of that now, if we could just get a, a little bit of it, can you imagine what it would do in our world today? But that aside, the optimism in these, in these old episodes that I see is just mind-blowing. And, and it's certainly not because the world was just such a, a, a much easier place to live at the time or because, the, you know, the, because our country had no problems at the time, because I assure you we did. It was that at the time there was a more optimistic outlook. So yeah, we're dealing with a little bit of an epidemic of, of negativity on our hands. As a matter of fact, I posted on my Facebook feed earlier this week, there's a, um, there's a, a, a report that came out from Psychology Today that said the, the average teenager today has the same anxiety level as, a psych, as the average psych patient in the 50s. That's a powerful statistic. So what it, wouldn't it be awesome if we could flip that? Wouldn't it be awesome if we could find a way to harness the power of optimism, put it to work for us, leverage it, and have it begin to, to bring about the good outcomes in our world that we're looking for and in our lives? And, and by the way, I want you to know, that doesn't mean that I want myself or you to, to hide with our head in the sand and act like we don't recognize that negative things are happening in our world. What I'm saying is, wouldn't it be powerful if, if you and I had the ability to look at those same negative things that everybody else sees, but somehow to see the positive side of it, somehow to interpret it in the best possible way? And I don't want to just do that because of the research. And I'm going to show you more research. I, I, I think it's important uh, because I believe that good research done well vindicates the Bible. And I've got some really awesome stuff that I'd like to share with you. But that's very, very much secondary. The main reason I want to share this with you is because I believe Jesus gave us an example of optimism. Not just an example of optimism, but that is what he says he's given us as God followers. Check this out in John chapter 14 and verse 27 when Jesus said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind, 
and heart. So that peace of mind and heart, mind meaning logic, God has given us a peace for our thinking. And then when he talks about heart, he's talking about our emotions, not obviously not the pump that, that pumps blood through our body. But when, when, the, when the Bible writers use the, the term heart, they're talking about the deepest place in our emotions, just like when a young man says to a young lady, I love you with all my heart. And so, so God is saying that through Jesus Christ, he's given us peace for our logic or for our intellect, and he's given us peace for our heart or for our emotions. And so I believe that the Bible says that Jesus has given us a legacy of optimism. And not only that, but he's shown it to us. He's, he's given us an example of it. One of my favorite stories in the scripture is when the disciples were out on a fishing boat together out in the middle of the, of, of the sea after Jesus has spent the day preaching and a terrible storm comes up. Now Jesus is asleep in the boat, there's this little compartment where they would put the nets when they were dried and out of use, but Jesus has crawled into this little compartment and he's gone to sleep. And the disciples are up and they're trying to, to get the boat far out into the, into the water and this terrible storm comes up. Now, if I'm going to read somebody's account of the storm, I would prefer to read Matthew's. I mean, we have a few different accounts of this, but I would really prefer to read Matthew's and here, here's the reason why. If you're not a boat person and you're in a storm on the water, you're going to tell that story better than anybody else tells that story, right? And Matthew is not a boat person. Matthew is a tax collector. He's the guy who goes from door to door and knocks on doors and collects taxes. But now he's in Jesus' group of disciples. They're out on a boat, so he's got to be on a boat with them. And he's telling the story of this incredible storm that comes up, you know? And uh, some of the other disciples who were fishermen are, are scampering around trying to, trying to manage it as best as possible. M Matthew's telling us how bad the storm is, and it's like he doesn't know what word to use. And he's really scratching his head. How can I say how bad the storm storm was. He finally uses the Greek word from which we get the word seismic, like if we're trying to talk about the magnitude of an, of an earthquake. And, and, and Matthew's basically saying it was like an earthquake on the water. It was terrible. And he said the boat was taking on water. And so they go and they wake Jesus up from, from the little compartment of the boat where he's sleeping. And they say, don't you care that we're going to die? Jesus gets up and says, guys, you have so little faith. And then he gets up and he speaks to the storm. And the Bible says when he, when he spoke to the storm, the, the storm became calm. And it dawned on me as I was preparing for this talk, isn't this what optimism and pessimism is kind of about? There are people in this world who bring calm to the storm. And then there are people in this world who bring a storm to calm. I don't want to be that second person. I want to be somebody who follows Jesus' example. I want to bring, a, uh, I want to bring calm to a storm in my life. And I want to follow how Jesus says we need to do this. So in order to understand that, I need to know what's not working when I'm not optimistic. When I tend to give over to pessimism, what's really broken? What's not working? And this is kind of where this whole series started. I was working on a writing project. I was doing a lot of research, and I stumbled across this statistic in the research. And uh, I started sharing it with my dad, and I said, man, this thing has just completely shifted my entire view about optimism and, and about finding a way to find calm in a world of ups and downs. And then we turned it into this. But the statistic was this. There was a, a couple of researchers that, that were, were studying individuals to kind of understand something about their emotional journey and their emotional experience. And this is what they found. Of their group that they researched, they found an 80% positive connection between optimism and self-esteem. 80%. In their study, if you had high levels of self-esteem, you were likely to be an optimist. If you had low levels of self-esteem, you were likely to be a pessimist. 
And it wasn't, so then I began to look at other researchers who had tried to duplicate those findings and found more of the same everywhere I looked. I kept finding these huge ties between how we see the world, which is optimism, and how we view ourselves, which is self-esteem. And in one study, one of the authors said it turns out that self-esteem is more primary. And as they began to study this, they began to, 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 to realize that it is almost though we think of optimism as the lenses through which we view our world. And it's like, well, we don't really know where we got these lenses from. Maybe these lenses are something that you're born with, or maybe it's something that you know you develop through hanging out with your parents or, or any of those different things. But it turns out that the lenses that we see our world through are actually the way we view ourselves. We develop a self-view, and then those become our lenses through which we see everything else. And it makes sense, doesn't it? How on earth would you see a positivity in the world around you if when you look inside, you don't see positivity? And then as I began to think about that, it reminded me of a story. Right out of high school, I went into a Christian college, very strict, 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 uber strict Christian college where there were many, 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 many rules. And uh, so, specifically, they had a bunch of rules about guys and gals. Like, there were things that you just couldn't do. And one of those was you couldn't go off campus on a date. It wasn't allowed. So if you wanted to go on a date, it had to be on campus and well within the, the all-watchful eye of the chaperones. There were many staff chaperones, and they were there to make sure we didn't get in any trouble. So, uh, but there was this one time where we actually got to go off campus on a date. Actually, it happened two times a semester. They were called dating outings. That's throwback to the 50s, isn't it? But on these dating outings, which the school sponsored, but we had these little collegians, which were like groups of us within the school, that we got to plan our own dating outing, and the guys could invite the girls once a semester, and the girls could invite the guys the other half of the semester. Now, there were chaperones, you know, two or three chaperones would come along for this, but there were a bunch of us in the collegiate, and so we thought the best thing we could do is do something like canoeing, where you got to spread like way out, because we figured they can't keep track of all of us <laughs> if we spread out, you know. And so uh, that was our brilliant idea. Now you should know, I'm not, you can probably tell by looking at me, I'm not exactly Mr. Rugged Outdoorsman, so boating experience is not something I had a lot of, but I figured it's just a little canoe, how hard can it be, right? Which those are typically famous last words. Um, but we get into the water, and by the way, this is the first date for me. I had many, many first dates. And uh, we're, I interview well, but getting the job is a whole other deal. But uh, so... We're, we're in the boat, we're going into the water, you know, and I begin to notice after we're in the water for a little bit that water is coming inside the boat, which I don't have a lot of boating experience, but I take that to be a bad sign. And then my date says, I don't think that's supposed to happen, right? And she wanted me to ask for help, but there's a couple problems with that. First off, it violates the universal man code. We do not uh, ask for help. Uh, secondly, I figured if I asked for help, the person I would be asking would be one of the chaperones who then I was sure would be attached to our hip for the rest of the day, which I was not at all interested in. So I just decided to bail water and try to convince my date that it was supposed to do this, right? So I'm bailing water. I'm like, no, this boat's built like this, you know, and I'm making up fancy names for the kind of boat it is. What's the reason that, you know, it's, it does this? 
And what was so bad about it was it was such a beautiful day. I mean, in Pensacola, during the summertime, you don't get a lot of temperate days. I mean, you know, you'd, you'd leave, we'd leave the dormitory, and it would be 102 degrees outside and so humid you could hardly breathe, you know. This just happened to be where it was like 80, 81 degrees. It was just gorgeous. We had little cloud covers, so we weren't getting baked. And I'm looking at all my friends out on their little rowboats, and they're just relaxing and having a good time and floating in the water and enjoying time with their date. And I'm over there bailing water. And of course, I don't realize it, but it turns out I'm splashing water in my date's face every time I, I'm bailing water. There was no second date, in case you're wondering. But uh, So we get to the end of the canoeing trip, and the guy who's taking the boats back goes, oh, well, there's your problem. Right? And he points to a little thing that looks like this. Anybody know what this is? It's a drain plug. Right? And our drain plug was halfway pushed in, which turns out to be just enough so that your boat leaks a lot, but not enough that you sink. Right? So I had spent my whole day fighting this drain plug that was halfway pulled out. He said, well, if you just push that thing all the way in, you would have been fine. And I'm always appreciative when the captain of the obvious tells us something after I need to know. Um, <laughs> But then as I was working on this talk, it totally clicked for me because I thought, you know, it turns out that it's, it's irrelevant what's going on outside the boat if you have a problem inside the boat. It's like it changes everything. It changes your perspective. So even if, even if there's good stuff going on outside your boat, if you got a hole inside the boat, it makes sense that you can't see the good in it. Why would you? Because you've got a major challenge going on right there. And then it began to make sense. This is why there's an 80% positive connection between optimism and self-esteem. Because so many of us, we've got a hole in the boat. When we look at ourselves, we don't like ourselves very much. And there's a lot of things inside us that we think are not very good. And so when we look at that, then we begin to really kind of get down on ourselves, And it's like we're, we've got that hole in the boat and it's leaking water and we're taking on water, it wouldn't matter how beautiful a day it is on the outside because we can't see it. I want to show you a quote. And I want to warn you ahead of time. This is kind of a cerebral quote. This is a quote I've lifted from the research. And I, I get that sometimes research can be a little boring to read, but there's a powerful, powerful truth in this. And we're going to distill it out here in just a second. Um, but this researcher says this, and I have a lot of res respect for this individual's research. He says, our findings are in congruence to this thesis. Daily emotional social support, which reflects a basic schema that the person is lovable. Now keep track of that word, lovable. And self-efficacy, which reflects a basic schema that the person is capable. Keep track of that word. Shapes optimism. So basically what this researcher is saying our capacity or ability to believe and to feel that we are lovable or worthy of love or that we will receive love or that we are valued plus our capacity to feel capable and that we will succeed when we take on life's challenges, our capacity to feel that we will not be a failure. Those two things together are what create optimism. Well, then it makes perfect sense why so many of us struggle with pessimism. I mean, just think about this. How many of us, please don't raise your hand, but how many of us have heard the message in our life that we are unlovable? Somebody along the road has criticized you or labeled you or said that you are this way or, or, or they've taken the, the, the moments that you've, the, the, that you've made mistakes or, or had problems and they've turned your whole life into that. That's all they can talk about about you. And you feel like they're trying to, they're trying to convince you that you're unworthy of love. Or maybe you've had a failure point in life and you've come to work and you've gotten the pink slip and it was like that pink slip was a big punctuation mark that said, you are not capable, you will fail. And no wonder we begin to struggle with pessimism. No wonder we, we begin to struggle with negativity. It turns out 
that we were built by God, hardwired to hear two messages. God built us to hear these two messages. One is, I love you, and the other one is, you can do it. It's one of the reasons why if you have kids, you need to make sure that these two messages are part of your, your parenting DNA. They need to be the main messages you communicate to your kids. I love you, and you can do it. You say, well, now, Jonathan, I'm really, uh, I, I get that, but I, I'm trying to teach them how to be functional adults, and there's a lot of things they need to learn to survive out there in this world. I totally agree. Teach them all those things, but make sure that as you're teaching them those things, the, the top two messages that you're sharing is I love you, and you can do this because God, God hardwired them to hear these messages just as much as he hardwired you to hear them. So let's talk about this. What if you have heard these messages? Or what if a little bit of pessimism has creeped into your life? How do you deal with it? Better yet, how would Jesus deal with it? And that's where I want to take you to John chapter 4, verse 3. And we're just going to talk about how Jesus flipped a pessimist into an optimist. Okay, here we go. The Bible says that Jesus left Judea and returned to Galilee. And the Bible says that he had to go through Samaria on the way. Geographically, this is not true. Uh, a lot of Jewish teachers would have gone the long way around to avoid Samaria because there was this massive rift between Jews and Samaritans. So geographically, he didn't have to go through. So when the scripture says he had to go through, it was because there was a divine appointment. God planned for, for Jesus to meet someone at this point. And so the Bible says even, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Do you hear the pessimism just like right off the bat? It's like, what's your ulterior motive? What's your hang-up, man? You ought to know that, that Jewish men do not speak to Samaritan women. And it's like, you must. What's your, what's your ulterior motive? Why would you be asking me for this? Right off the bat with the pessimism. And she had good reason to feel that way. She had three strikes going against her. Strike number one, she was a woman, Right? Jewish men at that time did not talk to women in public, not even their wives. It wasn't a good thing. It was a very male-dominated society, but that was the tradition. Men did not speak to women in public. So the idea that Jesus, this Jewish teacher, that's how she would have viewed him, that this Jewish teacher would speak to her, a woman, that, that was strike number one. That, that made no sense. Number two, she was an immoral woman. She'd been married five times. We're going to find out here in a second. She's living with a man who's not her husband. And she might not have known all the rules of Jewish law or all of the, 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 the law of, of God that the Jews were, were expected to live by. But she did know that what she was doing right now broke them. So she knew that a respectable Jewish teacher wouldn't speak to her who, was, who would have been, in, in his mind, an immoral woman. And then number three, and this one should have trumped them all, she was a Samaritan which meant she was really from the wrong side of the tracks. There was this big racial divide between Jews and Samaritans. There was a time where God's people intermarried with another people group, and that other people group brought their idols and their, and, and, and their other God worship in, in, uh, to the, into that situation. And as a result, uh, tr you know, traditional Jews viewed that as a, a compromise, both as a people group and, and a compromise religiously. And they were very upset about it. And it created this massive divide between these two people groups. Uh, the Jews would refer to Samaritans as half-breeds. 
And then after that, there was a period of time where the Samaritans actually began to worship the true God, and the Jews were trying to rebuild the temple, and they had all their equipment, you know, ready to go. They're getting ready to build it, and the Samaritans show up with, with you know, their hammers and nails and everything, and they say, we're here to help you build the temple. And the Jews say, we don't want you on our work site. It was, it was, the Samaritans took it as ridiculously rude, so they went and built their own temple. They went on Mount Gerizim and built their temple. And so now there's this huge feud. Who's got the most spiritual temple? Do the Jews have the most spiritual temple in Jerusalem? Do the Samaritans have the most spiritual temple in, in Mount Gerizim? And it's just a massive stalemate. And so of all things, you know, even if Jesus was willing to talk to her even though she was a woman, even if Jesus was willing to talk to her even though she was a moral woman, the idea that he would talk to her as a Samaritan totally, you know, messed up all of her, her normal ways of thinking. I mean, after all, ever since she was a little girl, she remembered how the Jewish people would cross the street so that they would not have to walk in the same path that Samaritans were walking. And yet Jesus had said something to her. So she says, what do you want? Why, why are you asking me? And in verse 10, Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Jesus said, Hey, this is an opportunity for you. You may not realize it, but if you knew who you were talking to and you knew what it was that I wanted to give you, it wouldn't be about me asking you for water. You would ask me for water, and I would, I would give it to you. And he says, I want to give you living water. But she stays in her pessimistic line of thought. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? You hear over and over again, well, how could you do that? I don't understand. You didn't bring a rope. You didn't bring a bucket. Obviously, you didn't get the memo. It's a very deep well. You're not going to be able to help me. You're not going to be able to get me any water. And besides, what do you mean better water? I mean, this is the main well. How are you going to get me better water than what comes from the main well? That doesn't make any sense. By the way, have you noticed that when we adopt pessimism in our life and we struggle to see how we would be capable to do something, we begin to project that onto other people. We figure if we can't do it, they can't do it either. And so she, it's like she's looking at this and saying, well, you're, you're saying you can offer me this, but I'm looking at it from, from my, my vantage point. I couldn't do this for myself, so I don't think you can do it for me. By the way, isn't it interesting that the same thing happens to us that happened with her, maybe unintentionally with her, but did you notice that she's projecting her incapabilities on God? How many times do we do that? And somebody says, man, I'm so sorry to hear you're going through such a rough time. Why don't you pray about it? And you say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll pray about it, but I don't know if God's going to do anything about it. Is it that you don't know that God's going to do anything about it, or is it that you feel incapable to do anything about it? And so there is that human feeling that goes, well, if I'm incapable of doing anything about it, then I sure don't know if God can do anything about it. And she was projecting that onto him. But then Jesus replied to her, anyone who drinks this water, speaking of the water in the well, will become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving eternal life, which, which is where we get the name New Spring. So now Jesus is, is beginning to talk about two different, you know, and he has since the beginning of this interaction been talking about two different waters. There's a water from the well that he's talking about, but he's, he's using the idea of water to speak of eternal life. He's saying, I want to give you a relationship with God, and that's going to be something that, that doesn't run out. It's going to be a, a spring within you that's always going to be there, and your relationship with God is something that you can always count on, it'll always be there, but they're still using the term of water to talk about it. She still thinks they're talking about H2O. And she says, please, sir, give me this water 
then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Man, so tough to think about this, but it had to be such a difficult thing for her to just put one foot in front of the other and go get water every day. And I know that because she didn't go to get water when all the rest of the women did. I mean, it was hot at the time, just like it's hot outside right now. And if you have a lot of outdoor work to do, right now is not when you want to be doing it. You want to wait until it's a little later in the day when the sun's not quite as high and, and, and it starts to cool off a little bit. That's when the women would go draw their water and, and take it back to their house. But she goes during the hot part of the day because she does not want to run into those ladies. She's heard enough from them. She's heard enough of the gossip about how she can't hold a man and all the things that she must have done to drive him away and, and, and all the guesswork about what happened between, behind closed doors between her and her husband and all the, uh, just all the nastiness that she'd heard from people. All the things that told her she was unlovable and incapable. She'd heard it all and she didn't need to hear it again. And so she goes to the well and now when she's talking to Jesus and Jesus says, I can give you water that won't run out, she says, please, anything that will keep me from having to come back here every day. And then Jesus said, well, go and get your husband. And I see as her shoulders just sag. I knew we were going to go here. She says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now watch this. If you've got your Bible out, look in your Bible right now at the end of that verse, or later on you can look at it when you're, when you're home and you read this passage. But look at the fact that Jesus just finished his turn of speech. He's done talking for the moment. Right? There's no lecture from him. There's no getting up and walking away indignantly. All the things that she's used to. This is the moment. Now that this Jewish teacher has revealed that he knows I've been married five times, this is where I get the hour-long sermon on why I've totally screwed up and why God is done with me and why I have no future. Or maybe this is when he's going to tell me how bad I am. Or maybe this is when he's going to make guesses about all the things that I've done wrong. And yet Jesus is done with his turn at speech and there's silence. And she sits there and she waits for him to get up and walk away. But he doesn't. And I begin to see this woman, you know, and she's, she, came, she came to this conversation with a furrowed brow and with a set jaw of someone who's having to find a way to be strong from day to day. And I see her in this moment as she begins to soften a little bit. And she thinks, maybe this is somebody that I can really talk to. But again, there were three strikes, right? Well, she's a woman, but he's still talking to her, so apparently that's not that big a deal. She's an immoral woman, but yet he didn't get up and walk away. But then again, she's also a Samaritan. Maybe he doesn't realize just how Samaritan she is, and she is Samaritan. So she really wants to make sure that, that this teacher she's talking to really gets just how Samaritan she is. So she says, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship?" Aha, now she's called the question. This is what people argue about over Thanksgiving dinner in her world. This is, this is the big split. This is what gets people all aggravated and all upset with each other, is where do you worship? You worship in Jerusalem, you, wor you worship in uh, Mount Gerizim. So now she's called it. Now he knows exactly how Samaritan she is. And look what he says. Believe me, dear woman. Which, by the way, dear woman there isn't just a passing phrase. It, it's a term of endearment. He really is saying, Listen, I, I want you to feel valued. Let me tell you something. He says, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. And then later he says, the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. And I just, I can't help but see 
is there's this moment where she just relaxes. And it's almost as though in this moment she's in the presence of a friend. She doesn't know this guy. But it's like this guy knows everything about her now, and he's still here, and he's talking to her nicely. This is a different kind of encounter than she's ever had with anybody else before. And so in this moment we see this big flash of optimism from her as she turns to him and says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Oh, please understand, in, the, in, in this woman's heart, deep, 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 deep down, underneath, way underneath the layers that her husband's ever got to see, way underneath the layers that her friends ever got to see, in a hidden place that she never shared with anybody because nobody was ever safe to share it with, she had this little hope deep down inside her heart that someday when, when the Messiah would come, it, it would make sense. The Messiah would explain things and she'd be able to make sense of her life because her life hadn't made sense so far. And now she shares this hope with this stranger, says someday the Messiah is going to come and he's going to explain everything and I cannot imagine the beauty of the moment as Jesus looks over at her and says that'd be me that'd be me imagine the power of the moment as this woman realizes that the only person who ever viewed her as capable even though sometimes she was incapable and the only person who ever viewed her as lovable even though sometimes she was unlovable is the only person that ever mattered anyway and she could sit in the presence of God and say, listen, as long as you love me and as long as you think I can do this, then it turns out it actually doesn't matter what anybody else thinks and it doesn't matter what the circumstances say because if I've got God on my side and she looked into the face of Jesus Christ and Jesus looked at her and said, I see value in you and I love you. And as she looks into his face and, and wonders, what could happen in my life that could turn this into a negative? There's nothing. For the rest of my life, I can look through the circumstances and the challenges that I face through the lens of the eyes of Jesus Christ who says, I love you and I believe you can do it. Why would God hardwire us to hear those messages? Because that's the messages he wants to share with us. That's what he wants us to hear. And I truly believe Jesus did flip a pessimist to an optimist. I think I can prove it. Look what happens after this encounter. In John chapter 4, verse 28, the woman left her water jar beside the, beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, here is a woman who has done everything she could to live under the radar screen. She's done everything she could to avoid other people. Now she's running smack dab in the middle of town and she's telling anybody she can find, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Oh, it's no longer about hiding the five husbands. She, she wants them to come to Jesus as much as anybody else. She'll talk to anybody who will listen. Her past isn't scaring her anymore. Actually, she can look at that past, at her history, at all the things that she's done before, and now she can actually see a positive in it because she sat across from the Son of God who talked to her about her past and set her free from the pain and the guilt and the shame and everything she'd been carrying so far. And now he said, go live your life, be successful, and connect with me and know that I'm here for you and I want to have a relationship with you. I mean, it just changed her life. See, I don't believe that pessimism is a maladaptive personality trait or a, personality or, or a shortcoming. I believe that when we have moments of pessimism, it's just that the full weight of God's love for us has not quite sunk in. Maybe it's having to work past the baggage. Maybe the message of God's love is having to work past the baggage and the history of all the things that people have said to us and done to us and made us feel like we were unlovable and make us feel like we we're incapable. And, and it's as though God is saying, hey, listen up. If you knew who I was and what I wanted to give you, you would ask me and I would show you because I love you. And it just turns everything around. 
and as far as God's message to us today about being lovable, Romans 8, 38, this is great. I, I gave this passage last week. I'll take any excuse I can to read this as many times as I can. Romans 8, 38, where Paul said, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, or our fears for today, or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. How lovable are you? You're so lovable that God made sure that in the fabric of this world there was nothing powerful enough to distance you from him such that he could not show you his love. And how capable are you? Well, Philippians 4.13 will do for that. For I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Right? course, when I was a kid and I'd read that passage, I'd be like, okay, so I'll go lift the piano, right? (laughs) Well, says I could do everything. But of course, this passage is saying anything that God assigns you to do, anything that God marks out for your path, God will empower you to do. So we have these two messages of God that's saying, I'm going to love you no matter what, and anything that I assign you to do, I'm going to make sure you have the wherewithal to do it. And through that, God Almighty says, I love you, and you can do it. But I know I've got somebody in this room who's saying, you know what, Jonathan, I appreciate that, but it's, it's, it's just not sinking in for me. I mean, logically, I get it, but, but feeling it is another thing entirely. Well, as we close this up, especially if you're a parent, I think this will be helpful for you. I want you to imagine, I have a little six-year-old girl, Summer. She's our little resident redhead. And I want you to imagine that Summer comes up to me and she says, Daddy, I'm a mess. I'm a total failure as a daughter. Everything I try to do, I screw up. I mess everything up. I don't think you ought to love me because I don't think I I deserve for you to love me. I just am so disappointed in myself. Right? Well, that would just break my heart. And I would wrap my arms around my little girl and I would tell her, there is nothing in this world that you could do that would make me love you less. And I know you're going to take on some challenges sometimes that that don't work out. I know you're going to try to do some things every once in a while that that fail. But that doesn't mean that I believe any less in you. It doesn't mean that I think that you you can't do things. I'm always going to believe that you can do things. I'm always going to believe that you can take on life's challenges. And then we read the, the words of Jesus, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Hey, hey, if you can be good parents even though you have a sin nature. He said, if you being evil can be good fathers, if you can be good parents, even though you have a sin nature, he says, how much more can God be an amazing parent to us? Because he's perfect. And see, some of us, it just hasn't sunk in. It hasn't gotten into our groundwater that we have a heavenly father that wants to wrap his arms around us and say, yes, will you mess up? I know you're gonna mess up, but I'm gonna love you anyway. Are you gonna fail sometimes when you try to do something? Absolutely, but it doesn't make me believe in you any less. You're my child, you belong to me, and I believe in you, and I love you. Man, I'll tell you, that's enough to, that's enough to flip a, a confirmed pessimist into an optimist. That can happen for you too. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the fact that you've given us the capacity to interpret things well, even in the middle of difficult circumstances. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. If you're in this room and you say, you know what, Jonathan, as you were talking about God as a loving father who wants to have a relationship with me, that was difficult because I don't feel like I have a relationship with God. Well, there's no reason to let that continue. God wants to have a relationship with you. You can reach out to him today and you can settle that. I must say the words to a very simple prayer. 
You don't need to say it out loud. You can just say this silently in your head to God, and it'll be settled. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you see the best in me. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. In your name, amen. All right, look this way just for a second. I know we're in overtime, but if you just prayed to receive Christ, do us a favor. Check the box on the Talk to Us card that you got that says, I prayed to receive Christ. Take it to guest services. They have a packet they'd like to give you, all right? Thank you so much for being with us this week.